All right, we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together now. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bibles to John. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, kind of wrapping up where we've been the last few weeks. So to kind of put you in perspective, we've been going through a series called Who is Jesus? So we've been discovering who Jesus is in the Gospel of John, and we've just been marching through the main story, starting in chapter 1, moving through up to chapter 10 a few weeks ago. And then because of the Easter holiday, we, we fast-forwarded. So the last... Uh, three weeks, including today, we jumped to the end of the story, right? Because that's what we celebrate. Easter is the annual memorial of the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what Christians all over the world do is we celebrate the resurrection. So we jumped to the end of John to get at those resurrection stories. Shannon Sword looked at a couple of weeks ago the burial of Jesus in chapter 19. Then last week we looked at chapter 20, the first resurrection discoveries of the early disciples. And then now this week we're going to be in John 20 and 21 to wrap up the story, and we're going to have a theme of sending. Jesus sends. Then what are we going to do next week? Next week, we're going to go to a brand new series, and it's going to be basically filling in the blanks that we missed by jumping to the end, right? So we're going to go back and do John 11 through 19 uh, over the spring and summer. We're going to call that the last words of Jesus, because kind of where, where we're hitting the story is that last week of Jesus's life, and it's a real microscopic look, right? There's like three years in the first 11 chapters, and then there's one week at the rest of the book of John, right? So now we're going to zoom in and see those last prayers and sermons and last acts of Jesus right before he died for us. So today, we're finishing up the story, chapter 20 and 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can open up um, the Black Bible in front of you. It's page 906. I don't know if I said that already. It's page 906 in the Black Bibles, um, and we're talking about the theme of sending. I wanted to share a little story that I think would help get our minds set on who we are and how we relate to Jesus and and the whole sending idea. We are a sent people by God. Uh, And so my professor in seminary shared the story 20 years ago, uh, and I find it really helpful. He talked about going to a city council or like a town hall meeting where the citizens got to uh, share their concerns about some new zoning laws that the city was putting in in his neighborhood. And he lived in a real nice neighborhood on the outskirts of St. Louis. Uh, and he said different people talked, and, the, you know, everything was collegial, and, you know, there was a little tension in the room, but people were basically being nice and talking to each other about this concern they had about new zoning laws. And then he said someone stepped up to the microphone to share their concerns, and this person said, I've been sent by the Bush family. And everybody was like, <gasps> and it got real quiet, and they wanted to hear what this person had to say. Now, not President Bush family, but Anheuser-Busch family, which is the richest family in St. Louis, Okay. Um, August Bush, a few years after that, uh, I think sold the company, and he's now worth like 13 or 14 billion dollars, right? So we're talking billionaires. So people, you know, didn't think, oh, I need to pay attention to him because he's my king. I don't need to pay attention to him because he's my leader. They just wanted to know, probably for their own selfish ends, because when you have a billionaire in your neighborhood, you're going to want to know what he thinks, right? He has influence, and maybe that influence can be a blessing to you. But what I really want you to zero in on here is the fact that it wasn't Mr. Bush that was speaking. Who was it? It was his representative. And when he stood up and said, I'm here, let's say his name was was, uh, Frank Jones. I'm here, I'm Frank Jones, and I'm here to speak on behalf of the Bush family. People weren't listening to Frank Jones because of his resume. They were listening to him not because of where he was born or who he was or even what he looked like. They were listening to him because he was sent by the Bush family. And that's who we are 
as God's people. We're sent by him, and it has nothing to do with us in and of ourselves, right? As God said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy, he says, I've chosen you and I'm using you, not because you're awesome, but because you're puny. And in your puniness, the world is going to see my glory as I work through you, despite your puniness. God's going to send you in the same way. So if you're big and powerful and awesome, I'm sorry, but God likes to use the puny and the weak, and he sends us into the world to carry the treasure of the good news of the gospel, the goodness of who God is, to share that message of hope that we have. And it's a desperate situation. The Gospel of John makes clear that we live in a world where people are running from God and hiding from God, a world in which without Jesus, people are under condemnation. People are under death. Um, Some of the words that's used is judgment, condemnation, death. Last week, we looked at the theme of darkness. Um, John doesn't use this description of this thing we call hell, but when you back up and look at the rest of the Bible, that's what that is. That category is called hell. People are are so glorious and so amazing being made in the the image of God. We're we're so amazing that, that we live on forever. And so what hell is, is it's a forever of condemnation and darkness and death and disintegration, perishing, John says in John chapter three. Or we can live on forever with life and light and goodness. We have this message of hope in Jesus. Like in Jesus, you can know life. You can know resurrection. And that's what we are to share with the world. So the stories we're gonna see today is Jesus saying to his apostles, I'm sending you. And I don't want you to get mixed up here because Jesus does send the apostles, the the 12 slash 11, he sends them, right, in a unique way. You and I are not apostles, just to be clear, in case you were confused about that. We're not apostles, but we're still sent ones, right? Some people make the distinction of like big A, little a, right? Um, We're still to be Jesus' representatives in the world. Uh, This is clarified by Paul who says we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We're the body of Christ, talks in other places about how the the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? So so we can distinguish the apostles are different than us, but we're we're part of the same organization of being God's people that are sent into the world to represent God and to bring his hope and his love. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at the text. And there's going to be a kind of introduction story of Jesus's appearance where he's like, I'm sending you And then there's going to be several other stories that will illustrate this sending, okay? So I'm going to start with the introduction story. We're going to read in verse 19. So chapter 20, verse 19, we'll get the first story that introduces the big idea. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that final verse, I'm going to explain that just a little bit. The way we understand that is that the power of forgiveness is in the message of the cross. So when Jesus is sending the apostles, 
He's breathing on them. He's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. You've got this message of forgiveness. You're going to go in my name. You're going to share this message, right? He's not saying, uh, because you wear a special badge, you get to forgive people and unforgive people, right? What he's saying is, you're carrying the message, right? And we, we understand that by looking at the rest of Scripture. So, so some churches, don't get me wrong, some uh, brands of Christianity would look at this and say, oh, they, only they can forgive sin. Only this special priestly class, apostles, pastors, maybe certain people with certain titles. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you have this message of forgiveness. Go, go and share it. Their authority is vested in the message, in the gospel. The gospel is the power. So that Romans 1.16 says it this way, the, the power is in the gospel itself. I believe there's power, Paul says, Romans 16, in the gospel message itself. That's the power of God for salvation for every man. So the power's not in Paul, the power's in the gospel. The power's not in these apostles, the power's in the gospel. That's where we find forgiveness. That's where we find hope. So Jesus is saying, go, take this message. You're gonna need to receive the Holy Spirit. This is really hammered home then in the story of Pentecost. Y'all know the story of Pentecost in the book of Acts? That's when it all kind of comes together. Here, he's just kind of previewing it, right? He breathes on them, and he's like, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to need to depend on the Holy Spirit. And then in Pentecost, they're waiting around, and right, everything blows up. The Holy Spirit comes. All these people begin to believe the message, to be saved, to find forgiveness in Christ. So let me pray for us and ask God to help us. As I said, we're going to then look at some of the more stories that, that finish up this book that illustrate this whole sending concept. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you sent these apostles. And these apostles shared the message with those that heard and received the message. And then they shared the message with others that heard and received. And here we are today, Lord, still hearing and uh, praising you for this good news that we have life in Christ. We see that you love us, that we're not abandoned. You've taken our sins upon yourself and you've given us resurrection life. Lord, help us to run with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this first appearance kind of gives the setup, right? I'm, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. He says this a lot in John 17, which we're going to go back and kind of finish the rest of John in order. We'll get to John 17 as well. He talks about this, how Jesus is sending the apostles the same way, same way the Father sent Jesus into the world. And then he says, then there are others that are going to be sent. That's us, the rest of the church, right? We are sent ones. We're ambassadors. He talks about in 1 Peter 2 that we're the special chosen priesthood, right? It's not just priests that are priests, but all Christians are priests, right? We all have this role of interceding for the world and bringing the hope of Jesus to the world. That's just who we are, right? Now, some of us do that more aggressively. Some of us do that more loudly, right? Like physically, I have a microphone strapped to my face so I can talk to more people, right? So I have the, the joy, the privilege of, of being like your messenger for our city of getting to, to preach and, and talk to more people and broadcast this maybe more broadly and more loudly, but we're all doing this together, right? We all get to have these conversations with people. We all get to share this message of hope. So some of us do it in different ways. We all have different gifts. The way Paul talks about we're the body of Christ and we all play different roles, right? You might be a, a thumb in the body of Christ or an ear in the body of Christ, right? Or a knee, in the, but we're all doing Jesus-y things in the world, right? We are representing Jesus in this world. We are his body, and he is the head. So there are going to be three ways that I see Jesus, I think, reassuring us, um, because this is a weighty thing that he would send us in the world. So 
there are three things that he shows us in these different stories. Number one, we're going to look at doubting Thomas and see that Jesus sends doubters. So if you're a doubter, I think that's going to be encouraging for you. Jesus sends doubters. Jesus doesn't, you know, wait for perfect people. He sends doubters like you and like me. And then the next thing that we'll see with the um, restoring of Peter, after Peter had messed up so much, is the way I want to phrase this is Jesus sends refurbished equipment, okay? Some of you like to buy refurbished equipment, get a good deal. It's broken. It has to be rebuilt. Um, I think that's Peter. Jesus sends refurbished equipment. And then finally, Jesus sends us through unique pains. We all have a unique story to tell. Uh, We all have unique pains and experiences. And what I want you to understand is that God uses that, right? Like my pain is not your pain, but because we're human beings that live in this world, we all have pain. And Jesus is actually sending us through that pain. That's That's a part of what he's using in our story. So first of all, Jesus sends doubters. We see this again in what's classically referred to as the Doubting Thomas story. So remember again, Jesus just appeared to the disciples. It's a big deal. Peace. I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. You've got the message of forgiveness. Boom. Go. Right? But look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Can you guys relate to Thomas? the most important thing in the history of the world just happened, and he wasn't in the room, right? Like, do you ever feel like that's you? Jesus came back, and he appeared to us, and he sent us. Let's go, Thomas. And Thomas was like, I I wasn't there. What are you talking about, right? And they tell him about it. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. I don't want to pick on Thomas too much, but I don't think we are to imitate everything we see in Scripture. And so I think we can find assurance as we see Jesus sending a doubter. But I want to encourage you to not do everything that you see Bible characters doing here, right? And so if you're a doubter, let me encourage you to not say to God, God, I refuse to believe in you unless you do exactly what I tell you to do, right? I just think that's a bad idea. It's like you're saying he's got to jump through hoops. I was just listening to a debate with an atheist and a non-atheist, and and that was kind of where it got to, you know? He was like, well, if he would do this and this, then I would believe, you know? And I'm like, how about this? What if you just say, honestly, God, I doubt I have a hard time believing. Will you help me? How about that? Why don't you just ask him for help? I just want to encourage you to to take those next steps, and I believe he'll meet you there. Now, here's the cool thing. Thomas, I believe, went too far. The text doesn't really tell us. I think he went too far. I wouldn't recommend saying, I absolutely will not believe unless I touch this and touch that and see this and see that. But what does Jesus do? He meets him there. He meets him there in that doubt, right? So on the one hand, I'm saying, don't go that far, but you know what? Jesus meets him there. Jesus is gracious to him in in his doubt and in his confusion. Look at his response here. So he says, I'm not going to believe unless this happens. Verse 26, eight days later, so I'll just a little aside, I think Jesus lets him squirm a little bit in his doubt. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. So he shows back up. This time Thomas is there. And then he said to Thomas, verse 27, 
put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my, in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus is like, here I am. Come on, Thomas. I'm here. I'm meeting you here in your doubt. So again, there's this like, I, I feel this tension of saying, I, I, don't, I, I don't recommend you say, Jesus, I absolutely won't believe unless you give me $10 million, you show up in this way, maybe a burning bush, right? Like you outline this list of demands. It's almost like you're holding God hostage. I don't recommend that. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus shows up for Thomas. And so I would just say, man, just tell God, I'm, I'm doubting, I'm struggling. Will you show me? Will you help me? And I believe he will meet you there. Here's the cool thing. We're not really sure if Thomas actually did put his fingers in the holes. Like it doesn't say it, right? It just says, um, verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He believes. And then here Jesus adds this for you and for me. Because again, I want this, I want this to be clear. We're not apostles. The apostles had a unique role. They're our family, so we're the same. We're sent ones with the apostles, but they're sent in a unique way, right? Apostles write the Bible. Apostles are the first generation of witnesses to the resurrection. So they have a unique role in the history of what Jesus is doing in the world. We're doing a lot of the same stuff they do, but we're not exactly the same, okay? And this is one of those uniquenesses. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that's for us because he's not standing in front of us, right? Jesus appeared physically, he did these miracles, he did these signs, he showed that he was the Messiah, he was murdered for it, he died as that perfect Passover lamb, he took our place, he took our sins upon himself, and just to make sure we didn't think that death got the last word, he rose from the dead, which is the way the the apostles preach in the book of Acts is that certifies, that verifies that he really has defeated sin and death for us. So that's the message that the apostles are carrying But then Jesus ascends into heaven and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's physically not here in front of our face anymore. He's present physically through the church. We are his physical representation in the world. We are the body of Christ because we're filled with his spirit. And so now people see us and hear the message and that's how they believe. And the message is recorded authoritatively in this word. So the apostles who are eyewitnesses of the resurrection wrote down the stories and we've got it. And so now we can share it with people as well. So we can share this message of forgiveness that the apostles were given. We can share this message of a witness to the resurrection with others. And Jesus says, there are gonna be some that that don't get to see me and don't get to put their hand in my side or, or check the holes in my hands. And yet they will believe and there's gonna be great blessing there. So I want to invite you to that kind of belief. Belief is simply placing your trust in Jesus, that he's the one that brings you to God. You're not the one that brings yourself to God. That you're not climbing the stairway of heaven yourself, but he is the stairway that comes down to you. And he invites you to to believe, to trust in him for yourself. And here he's saying there's going to be great blessing for you. That's what Jesus is promising. There's the blessing of life. Not everything being perfect, not everything going right, but having a restored relationship with God, knowing forgiveness, and having your life turned around. So now you begin to see yourself as someone who's loved by God, like the Apostle John, and you begin to see yourself as someone who's sent by God to bring this love and grace and encouragement to other people. 
So he reinforces this here in verse 30. Look at verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So what does that mean? There's a bunch of other stuff Jesus did. We don't have every single thing Jesus did written down. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's a, a, another kind of tension that we walk. I, I think it's okay to ask questions. Um, I've, I've loved studying apologetics, dealing with like reasons to believe, um, understanding the manuscript evidence we have. I mean, just one little thing that's really cool about Christianity, um, we have more ancient Greek manuscripts and other language manuscripts of the original words of the apostles in Jesus than any other historical event, any other famous person, any other ancient poetry, right? Like Homer or Herodotus, this history, you know, like more than anything, we have an embarrassment of riches from a textual perspective. Evidence upon evidence upon evidence. We have piles and piles of historical and journalistic evidence. We talked about that a little bit last week, and that stuff's awesome. But don't, don't do this like intellectual game where you just talk about the evidence and you don't actually read it, right? Because that's where the power is. Again, Romans 1.16, the power is in the gospel itself. The power is in the message. Don't miss the, the power of actually reading these stories. And so what's the next step you can take? If you're wrestling, if you're a doubter, Jesus can send you as you wrestle with the text itself. Read the stories. I, and I'm, so again, don't, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, don't ask any questions, just read the stories. I'm just saying, don't not read the stories. Read the stories. Read the stories. Asking questions are great, right? Studying history is great. Studying archaeology is great. Studying the manuscript evidence is great. Do those things, but don't neglect the story. Why? Because he says, these were written, so you may believe. There's power in the actual word. Um, Leslie Newbigin was a British um, missionary in India for, I think, about 40 years. And he's been really helpful in helping the Western church understand how to operate in a post-Christian era, right? Because um, we're arguably, well, we should say post-Christendom, right? In a post-Christendom society. In a society where now um, it's not necessarily good for business to be a Christian. It used to be good for business to be a Christian. Not so anymore, right? More and more. Uh, we're like the first century people where there's persecution. Again, we, you know, by no means do we have it bad in America. We're pretty spoiled, but we're seeing more and more it's, it's getting unpopular to follow Jesus. And he says it's really helpful to kind of think through what does it mean to actually be a missionary, right? Don't think of yourselves as Christians in Christendom. Think of yourselves as missionaries being sent to this place, to this city. And one of the things he talks about is when he was in India, he understood as a Westerner who'd been trained in Western thought um, that a lot of that was good and beautiful and he enjoyed his Western heritage, the Enlightenment heritage, but he didn't have to convert people to Enlightenment thinking before they could believe the gospel. You know what he discovered? He could just tell people the story of Jesus in a culture that didn't share all the assumptions he had, in a culture that didn't value logic and Enlightenment thinking and in empirical evidence the same way his Western culture did. He could just share the story of Jesus. And there's power in these stories. So I encourage you to think about that. Again, we don't want to completely abandon our culture. I think there's a lot of good things in, in Western thought and logic and reason and kind of working out some of these things in a way that helps us to understand the history and the archaeology of it all. But, but read the stories. 
Read the stories. They were written so that you would know Jesus, that you would have life, that you would have belief. What's the next step for you in in your journey of of reading the stories, getting to know the stories? So Jesus sends doubters. He converts doubters. He sends doubters. He also sends the refurbished. Refurbished equipment, a lot of you have probably bought a refurbished phone or a refurbished computer, uh, something like that that's, you know, it was broken and now it's been fixed. Well, the Apostle Peter represents that in our life. And I think really, universally, we're all broken, right? That's the gospel message. We're all broken without Jesus, and we need him to refurbish us. Uh, but sometimes we see it more starkly. Um, Peter's a great story because Peter is like the chief of the apostles. He's like the leader of the apostles. And all the different gospels, you see him leading, right? You see him functioning uh, as like the head of this gang. Um, and he's always the boldest, and he's the one that takes charge. He's the one that speaks first. Arguably, sometimes he speaks without thinking, right? Um, But maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe you have the quote-unquote leadership gift, or at least the boldness gift, or maybe you're just impulsive. I don't know. But maybe you can relate to Peter, and we see this really cool story here of Jesus refurbishing this broken equipment. Peter thinks he's awesome. He realizes he's not awesome, and you know what? Jesus doesn't leave him there. Jesus says, no, I still want to use you. I still want to send you. Uh, So let's look at the story. It's in John chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Verses 1 through 17. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of the disciples were all together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And so just think about this to kind of set it up. You don't want to make too much of these little details, but I I think it's worth noting Right? Jesus had called them out of fishing to be his disciples. And now they're in this kind of place of confusion. They, they've seen the resurrected Lord. They know he won, but they're still kind of confused. Like, what do we do with our life now? Right? They're in this transition. A lot of us are like that, where we believe, yet we're still not sure what to do with our life. Right? And so he goes back to what he knows. I think that's pretty normal. It's a default we have, and Jesus is going to have to call him back out of what he knows to send him on the task that Jesus has for him. So he goes back fishing. That's what he knows. Yet, look at this. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Sometimes God in his grace um, will not allow you to be successful in certain situations. And I would say sometimes that's that's God redirecting us, right? We don't want to make too much of circumstances, but sometimes, I've seen that in my own life, sometimes that's God just nudging me in a different direction. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. (laughs) I don't know exactly the tone that they had, but that's what I think it was like. No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, you know, that's John. We talked about that last week. Um, that disciple said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. This is so cool. Jesus made breakfast for them. Isn't that awesome? I just love these pictures of Jesus like meeting people where they are, especially like this image because I, I love barbecue, right? So it's like 
just kind of meeting them right there on the shore. There's this charcoal fire going. He's got some, he's got a spread out ready for him. That's a beautiful thing. The other thing that's kind of cool here is, is think back over your studies of the, the life of Jesus. When's the last time that Peter was hanging around a charcoal fire? It, it's when he was denying Jesus, right? It's like, I don't, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. He starts cussing. I don't know the man. He denies him three times. A lot of research has shown that smell is connected to our memories and our emotions, right? Um, I've read this a lot. I've studied a lot. It's, it's ironic. I, I'm kind of a large-nosed man, but I don't smell very good, right? So this is not all that true in my life because I just don't smell things very vividly. Um, but I've just heard this a lot. My wife, who smells things very clearly, right, has a strong sense of smell, said this. How many of you have, have experienced that in your own life where a smell like reminds you? Yeah, just strong emotional link. And there's been a lot of research on this, something about the way human body is set up. The, they're like close or something. We could ask us a real scientist about this. But um, there's some connection there. And so it's like Jesus is bringing him back to that same smell, to that same experience to, to restore and refurbish him, right? He's helping him walk back through this, this painful past. And so they're over the charcoal fire. They've got to spread out. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Um, all kinds of stuff has been written on all the symbolism of the 153. I really don't know. Like, I, don't, I just don't think it's that important to the story, Okay. Um, I joked about it in the early service, and I think people thought I was being disrespectful. I just flipped through the pages of my commentary that had like 10 pages on what this could mean. Why did they do that? Because it's like, we don't know, right? <laughs> so there's 10 pages of ancient commentators saying, well, 153 could mean this, and it could mean that. Well, just, I think what he's saying is there were a lot of fish, okay? <laughs> I think that's the big idea here. So sometimes when you're reading the Bible in a story sense, yes, there's symbolism. There's symbolism all through the scriptures. I just don't take it here to be that important. Here, I think the, the big idea is there were a lot of fish, right? It was miraculous, and their nets weren't torn. Their, their minds were kind of blown, right? It's a reinforcement that this really was Jesus, the same one who had done miraculous catches of fish with them in their past, right? So he's, he's bringing them back to the beginning again. He's like, I'm that same Jesus, right, that called you to come and follow me that told you in, in Matthew, I will make you fishers of men, right? I'll send you out to catch men instead of just catching fish. So that's where we are. In verse 12, Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so Jesus is appearing to them again. He's restoring them. And this is what he says in verse 15. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. These are the sending directions, right? Like, right, Simon, do you really love me? Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now there's a, a lot of 
interesting things going on in the text. You might have heard, if you've heard this preached on before, there's different words for love used here, and obviously there's an intensification you can feel. He starts with, do you love me more than these? And he ends with just, like, do you love me at all? Right? So there seems to be some progression there. But again, I think the important thing is not so much in the weeds. I think the important thing is it's a charcoal fire. Miraculous catch of fish. He's, he's taking him back to experiences he's had with Jesus before. But the difference here is he denied Jesus three times, and now Jesus is saying, tell me you love me three times, and I'm going to give you a task to do. You love me? You love me? You love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Take care of the little ones. Now, again, we want to distinguish um, Peter's an apostle. We're not apostles, right? So shepherding for Peter looks different than shepherding for you and me. And I would say even I'm, I'm a pastor, right? That's my role at the church. Do you know what that means? It's a Latin word for shepherd. It literally, it means shepherd. That's, that's the word for pastor. So leaders in the New Testament are referred to as shepherds. There are three words that are used interchangeably. Overseer, which just kind of means like manager. I mean, then elder, which is kind of the old tribal, like the council of chiefs that make decisions, right? And then pastor or shepherd. And those three words all just mean leader. They're different perspectives of looking at leaders in the church. So I might have a, a kind of different take on shepherding than you do as well because I have an official role at the church. But remember what I was saying before. The whole church is tasked with being the church. So apostles have a unique role. They're laying the foundation. Pastors have a unique role. It says in Ephesians uh, 4 that part of my unique role is to equip you so that you can do ministry out in your community and in your neighborhoods and where God has placed you. So we all have shepherding to do, right? Might be different specializations. As Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, we're all the body of Christ, right? Like one of us might be the hand and one of us might be the eye or the mouth or the knee or the foot, but we're all the body of Christ. We're all doing Jesus-y things, shepherding his sheep. Another way to think about this shepherding, this tending lambs, this feeding sheep, is there are two images that Jesus uses about the heart of the Father caring for lost sheep. And what he says is he, he chases after lost sheep. In Luke 15, he uses the image of a lost sheep kind of like someone that doesn't know God at all. Someone without faith. We run after them and we bring them back, right? So that's part of the church's job. Part of how we're sent is to find people that don't know Jesus and help them to know Jesus. And then in Matthew, Jesus uses the same illustration. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but preachers sometimes will take a few stories and they'll use them for different things, right? Jesus did this a lot. He'll use the same lost sheep illustration in Matthew and talk about believers who have just kind of gotten off track. And so sometimes that's what it looks like for us to feed or chase lost sheep or protect them, right? It looks like coming to your brother or your sister in Christ and saying, I'm worried about you. Like, I'm, I see you doing weird things here. I say, you haven't been showing up or, you know, like, I just, I'm worried about you. Can I help you? What's going on? And, and we dig and we pursue. So, those are two different views of, of chasing after lost sheep. That's part of what it means to be sent, to be refurbished equipment that's sent, and we go out and, and we care for others, right? We saw that in John 10. I encourage you to go back and look at John 10 where it talks about Jesus as the good shepherd because Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. As he saves us and restores us, we, we get to be shepherds, right? We get to shepherd whatever little ones God has placed in our life. Now, some of you might be in a job where you have, like, no one under your authority. Um, you might not have kids, right? Like, so it might be hard to think, who are the, like, the sheep I'm supposed to take care of? I would say, again, we're a, we're a body, and, and we just take care of whoever God places around us. 
you can still pursue lost sheep even if you don't have some sort of authoritative role, right? Jesus sends us as his representatives. If you call yourself a Christian, you're, you're putting on Jesus. And you're like, I'm going to go out and try to, try to do what Jesus does. I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm going to care for people. I'm going to love people. First Peter 2 says that all of God's people are priests. We're a holy nation. We have this special identity of interceding, right? And so that's just part of who we are as God's people. We are to care for people. We're to chase them. We're to love them, encourage them. And again, you all have different gifts, right? Um, I, I love to teach and study the Bible, and I love to write articles and preach sermons, and that may not be your thing, but you can still share the story of hope that you have in Jesus with a friend, right? Doesn't mean you have to be a preacher or you're not sharing the message at all. We all can share the message in the the circles that God has put us in, the message of hope that we have in Jesus. And so it's a beautiful picture here. And I also love the contrast of this image of like feeding little lambs. And Jesus is giving these instructions to burly Peter, right? He's, again, he's like the chief. He's the most impulsive, loud, outspoken, violent of the apostles, right? He's the one that when they came for Jesus, he cut the dude's ear off. Do y'all remember that story? He's intense. I think this is perfect for us because I hear that some of you carry a sword around as well, right? Maybe not a sword, but Romans 13 says that soldiers and police have, have the power of the sword. Symbolically, you might drive tanks, right, or carry guns around, but soldiers, you, you are men of justice, warriors often. And Jesus is saying, I want to refurbish you And I want to use you to feed lambs. Are you up for that? Are you up for caring for little ones? Jesus dignifies that as as something strong and beautiful and awesome. I think a lot of times as men, we we only want to do things that, that glorify us. But Jesus calls us to glorify him, right? We carry this treasure again, as Paul says, in in jars of clay so that the, the treasure is clearly seen to be God and not, not us. So, so what are ways that you can find little ones, weak ones, outsiders, those who don't seem worthy, and you can encourage them. You can feed them spiritually. You can come alongside them. You can help them. I think that's what it means to be refurbished, to be sent back out. We're no longer the bold Peter whacking people's ear off with a sword anymore, but we're just serving in whatever way we can. What does that look like for you? If, if you do have kids, I really want to encourage you dads. Um, I think, uh, wives, I'm going to not pick on you because I think you generally do this better than the husbands, but husbands, I want to pick on you. Um, if you have kids, dads, make sure you take your spiritual leadership seriously. Take it seriously. Um, and we just know from basic biology that, that women are better at like talking and reading than men are, okay? That's like a basic on a bell curve. That's just like a common thing. Women are verbally more gifted than, than men are. And so men, especially in your uh, relationship with your wife, if you have kids, she's the expert. So it's real easy to just kind of like delegate that and step out, not be involved. Be involved. Go to your wife because she is the expert and say, hey, how can I be more involved? Like help me to be more involved. And one of the just real basics, a tangible one I would say is, is just pray with your kids and for your kids and read the Bible to them. Get a good children's story Bible if you have little ones, right? Like the big picture story Bible or the um, Jesus story Bible, one of these kind of things. Our nursery and children's directors can recommend a lot of great resources. A book that we love that we read with our kids was called My ABC Bible Verses. That was a great 
book because it kind of helped kids to understand uh, what it looks like to apply scripture in like little kid ways, right? It was a really helpful one, my ABC Bible verses. It's a book a lot of my friends are reading now that wasn't around when I had kids, right? Somehow they survived. But it's a great book called Theology. Have you all ever heard that one? Theology. It's like a play on the word theology, um, but it just kind of goes through and explains biblical truth and ways that kids can understand. It's a really good one as well. Our children's director, uh, our nursery director, puts out take-home pages that helps you to talk about what they're learning in church and in Sunday school. Take advantage of those things. Those are tools for you to talk about these things with your kids. Okay, spend a lot of time there. I know a lot of you don't have kids. If you don't have kids, hey, we would love for you to read Bible stories to our kids as well. Okay, so, so come on. We're all part of the body of Christ together. But we see again this picture of Jesus sending the refurbished, him rebuilding Peter, this bold, brash, impulsive guy and saying, go take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. So here we get to the last little part And this is Jesus sends us through unique pains. We'll just look at the last few verses here. So Jesus has this very clear call on Peter. And he says in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. So this is crazy, right? He's told Peter, this is going to be your job. I want you to feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. You're not fishing anymore. You're not going to feed my sheep. You're going to tend my little lambs. You're going to care for the little ones. You're going to encourage them. You're going to be shepherd. Then he says, oh, by the way, you're going to die a grisly death. Basically, that's my summary, right? You used to do what you wanted, Peter, but when you get old, you're going to, you're going to get killed. Now follow me. He clarifies it, right? Some people, you have to really clarify how hard it's going to be up front. Other people, you can be like, it's not going to be that bad. Come on, right? <laughs> I, l- I love the comparison between John and Peter here. Remember, we saw last week that they raced to the tomb, and John got there first, but he was scared to go in, and then Peter went in, right? And there's this kind of difference between the two characters, and that, that comparison continues. So, so Peter is, is following Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, dude, it's going to be rough. You're going to get killed, but follow me, all right? Follow me. And what does Peter do? Look look at the next verse in the text. He kind of stops and looks back. He's like, well, Jesus, what about this guy, right? (laughs) You ever do that when you're following Jesus? Especially if you're in a time of intense pain. Jesus just described, you're going to get killed, Peter, and you're not going to like it. And sometimes when we're going through suffering, right, if you're sick, having some kind of relational issue, your business is falling apart, whatever it is, you're having a problem at work, you're like, but Jesus, what about, what about those guys? They seem like everything's cool for them. Why, why am I struggling so much? Do you ever do that? I know I do, I do that. Um, and Peter does that. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So John's making sure you know. John's like, this was me again. Um, verse 21, when Peter saw him, He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So if you're feeling that, rise up in your heart like, Well, Jesus, why why am I sick? What about that guy that's not sick, right? Or why am I suffering? What about that person over there? there?" And, And Jesus is saying, hey, if it's my will that they not suffer, you don't worry about it. You follow me. 
You follow me. Now, just to be clear, John's going to say this. That doesn't mean I wasn't going to die, right? John has to clarify that. It was just a point that Jesus was making with Peter. It's the point of, you don't, you don't worry about him. You follow me. That, that's what he's saying. He's not saying, yeah, I'm going to give them all happy life, and it's going to be easy, but I'm going to have you have a miserable life because I really don't like you very much. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, your job is to follow me. Trust me. Trust me, it's going to be okay. T- to live in this world is to live in a world of pain. To follow Jesus in this world is to follow Jesus through pain. And you either believe that Jesus can turn that for his good or not. So do you believe Jesus can work through your pain and work through your struggle and, and use that and send you through those unique pains that you're going through for his purposes and for his glory? Headed towards the new heavens and the new earth where all things are going to be made right, where every tear will be wiped away. That's not now. It's not our best life now. It's our best life later. It's our burning up, spending our best life now for Jesus' glory. And then later we'll see him face to face and it'll be more than we can ask or imagine. And that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. And so Jesus says, what if, what if I leave him here until I come back? You don't worry about it. You follow me. Verse 24, well, excuse me, Verse 23, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So the rumor actually spread around. From tradition, we understand that John actually was the disciple that lived longer than any other. We also understand, again, from tradition, we're not always sure about these things, that he was the youngest of the disciples. That kind of makes sense. But John's, you know, writing this maybe later than everybody else. We think it was the last gospel that was written. He's like, just to be clear, Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die. Right? I just kind of made it longer than everybody else. And then guess what happened? And then he died. Right? So here's another way I like to think about this. And maybe this isn't encouraging to you, but it's encouraging to me. If God heals me from something I'm going through, he's healed me so that I can suffer more for his glory. Right? Paul describes it in Philippians 1. Paul says, of course I'd rather be with Jesus. That would be better by far than living in this world. But I believe that God has left me here for fruitful labor. He left me here to struggle in this world of sin and disease and brokenness to spend more of my life for fruitful labor. Paul believes he sent me. And that's what I'm hoping that we'll see as well. God's placed us here for his purposes not just for our pleasure and glory, for his pleasure and glory, to to glorify him, to help more find the hope that we have in Jesus. So he says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I don't think he's talking about uh, physical, you know, there's not enough space in the world to write every letter of what Jesus did. What he's saying is the world couldn't bear it, but remember what he said at the end of chapter 20, but I've written you the stuff you need to know. You've got what you need. You've got what you need. So believe and follow me and trust that Jesus is sending us through unique pains. We have this really weird place that we live in right now where we live in in such a wealthy, such a place of abundance that it's hard for us to even imagine that God wants to use our suffering. I think we're more tempted probably in a lot of ways than Christians in any time in history to think, no, God wants me to have health and wealth. He doesn't really want me to suffer, right? 
but we should pay more attention to our brothers and sisters across the world. I grabbed a picture here of uh, Christian martyrs in, in Egypt being beheaded. Um, that's more of the norm throughout Christian history. And more and more, I think our culture will go that way as we become the, the post-Christendom West. The idea is no matter what pain you're going through, Jesus says, follow me, follow me. What does it take to have the confidence to just follow Jesus and trust him no matter what? Isaiah gives us a really good picture, and we'll finish with this picture in Isaiah. Isaiah 6 is a famous sending passage. Uh, I would recommend to you looking up uh, R.C. Sproul. He's done a famous sermon on that. Uh, He's done it multiple times and written books on it and stuff. You can find it on YouTube and different places. But it's called The Holiness of God. And in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is confronted with a vision of God. He sees God in all of his awesome, terrifying holiness, in his righteousness. And what's the natural response when you see the holiness of God? For Isaiah, and I think for all characters in the Bible, you're just, you're undone. Isaiah just, he falls apart. He's like, I'm unclean. I'm unrighteous. I'm unclean and my people are unclean. And and how does God respond? In that moment of confession of Isaiah admitting that he's unclean and that he's undone, God meets him there. In the vision, it's an angel and a burning coal, but it's a a vision in their way of understanding the temple system. It's a vision of atonement and sacrifice. And so God forgives his sin and cleanses him from his sin. Just like 1 John promises, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Isaiah has that experience with God. And then God says, who, who will I send to tell people about me? That's when Isaiah says, here I am, send me, right? And so if you don't feel sent, I would say go back to who you believe God is. Do you understand God and all of his incredible holiness? And do you understand that this God who is holy has come after you in Jesus and sent his son to forgive you, to cleanse you, to make you new? If you understand God in that way, then you will begin to be a sent one in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and that you sent your son for us. Help us to see that you are sending us. We all have different gifts. We have different skills. We do it in different ways, but you send us to represent you, to represent your justice, to represent your love. Um, Help us to intercede on your behalf. Help us to represent you well, um, to be your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.